And as you're being seated, if you would then turn in your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is on page 4. going to look at the entirety of Genesis chapter 4 today. And you may say, Mark, we've heard that before to get through an entire chapter. Well, we are going to this time, maybe. As we take a look at this, I pray that you would listen carefully because this is God's word that's for you. As much as you can, I know this is a very familiar text. One that you have doubtless heard many times as this has been put into the pantheon of Bible stories that we're all very familiar with. And it can often easily be thought that because we're familiar with it, we know everything there is to know about it. Because we've heard it so many times that we are the message and the actions of it have become numb to us. But I would pray, as much as you can, try to listen to this with fresh ears as we examine today Genesis chapter 4. Begin in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, 
and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jubal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's, name was, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we ask you to be with us today as we examine a challenging text. Let it be a warning sign to the rest of us. Let our hearts fear sin the way that they should and run to you the cure. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it can be hard to preach on sin to a Christian audience. Because Christians, at least in their minds, know that this is something that they should not do. We all know the list of the Ten Commandments. We can tell you about the destruction that sin can cause. But until it becomes personal, it's often difficult to take those warnings seriously. We all hear from our doctors about how we're supposed to exercise or we're supposed to eat correctly and the fact that we'll still die anyway. But it's not until we get a diagnosis or someone close to us gets a diagnosis do we begin to take those things seriously. It actually comes into our minds that this can happen to me. A lot of times the same thing happens with sin. We won't take sin seriously until we see its effects in someone else's life that's been close to us. And only at that time do we really begin to take these things seriously. What I'm hoping that this passage will do for us today is to help us see how sin can work and that it's closer to home than we think. The story of the Bible is a story of a family, the people of God our family. And we can see offshoots of this family and what's happened to them and how things can so quickly spiral out of control that don't just end with the person who did the crime, but actually extend even deeper into the family as we'll see here. So as we look at this text, look at this like a warning sign to where sin can actually take you. Because this is where it took Cain. And if we think that we are above Cain's temptations, well, then we're making his exact same mistake. So, 
as we look at our two points today, which the first is that sin desires to rule you, just like it did with Cain. Sin desires to rule you too. But then secondly, we don't want to end on a negative note. Sin doesn't get the final victory. But that sin will not rule God's plans. So let's see how these two things interact with one another as we jump into our text today. As we begin here in chapter 4, we are reminded of what happened in chapter 3. Adam and Eve were in paradise, but then they sinned and were kicked out of the garden. And rather than being killed and executed immediately, they were given the hope that there would be children to follow. But there was also the warning that the snake would have children as well. That there would be a godly line and an ungodly line. And that these two lines would be at enmity with one another. Be enemies. Until eventually the one, Jesus, would come to crush the head of the snake. To crush evil to make and set all things right. And what we're going to see here begins with a note of hope here with Cain. Adam knows his wife Eve and she conceives and bears Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In fact, Cain is very close to the word in Hebrew for gain, getting something, receiving something. Here, Eve might have thought, as I remember one pastor teaching, that she probably thought, ah, here's the seed. God promised me that there would be one to come, that there would be born of Eve that's going to set everything right. This must be him. All the hope to the firstborn son. And then in verse 2, almost as a passing thought, we get, and again, she bore his brother Abel. There's no lead up. There's no explanation of Eve's commentary on Abel. It's just, here he is. And you'll see again and again how the text talks about that Abel is Cain's brother. This is going to show up again and again and again, because this is his role. We never really hear from Abel, never even really hear him talk. In fact, some have looked at that the Hebrew for Abel is very close to the word for hevel, which is helpless, vain, empty. So here he goes on, and we're given, we skip Cain and Abel's boyhood and jump straight to their time as adults. And here in verse 3, it says, And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Here, each of them reflecting their own occupations, what they grew up to do. Some eagle-eyed commentators had noted that this actually might be our first hint of the trouble to come. Here, Cain is a worker of the ground, which was the first task that was assigned to Adam in the course of his being cursed. He was going to work the ground. And Abel is actually going back a lot further to their original mandate, which was to rule over the beasts of the field. And here Abel is doing that shepherding these animals. Now, as he brings, as each of them bring their own offerings to God, we see Abel's is accepted and Cain is not. And the question, of course, always comes as to why? 
Why is he taking one and not the other? As we'll see later on, there were offerings that would be given of the ground. There were grain offerings that were offered. So it's not like Cain's bringing something that God doesn't want. Not a whole lot of insight is given to us, at least in this passage itself. But as scholars have pointed out, it's not just the offering that's being rejected. Notice that there are two things that are being given. Here in the latter part of verse 4, it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In fact, if you look later on in the Bible, much later on, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it puts the emphasis on faith. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. So what this points to is that it was probably Cain and Abel's heart as they approached worship. Cain's was not in it. He was here to go through the motions, to offer the sacrifices, but the love for God was not there. For Abel, it was. Some can also point out the fact that that here it's made mention that Abel is bringing of the best and the fattest of his efforts. We don't see the same thing given to Cain. You can see that there is a heart of worship in Abel that's not here with Cain. This shows us that from the very beginning, God has always been interested in one's heart. We tend to think that the Old Testament was all about the externals, and it's the New Testament is where Jesus actually starts caring about the heart. Not so. He's cared about it all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. That it's about one's heart that needs to be right with God. One of my... Um, Seminary professors had said that the offering here is not as important to the story as the attitude of the person making the offering. Now, we'll see this as this goes forward here in verses 6 and 7. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Here, this is a rage that Cain is in at the moment. And the Lord tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here, the Lord is warning Cain of what's coming. That their sin is desiring to have Cain. And he gives us this picture of a predator animal that is lying in wait. And really here, I always had thought about crouching as being like it was ready to attack. And actually, the Hebrew is more about it's like having, having a lion lying down next to the door. It's ready if you go out there. If you disturb the lion, you're going to be in trouble. But it's a matter of whether or not are you going to go out and poke it. I don't know if you all have had the same, the same eight-legged visitors that are spinning webs around our houses or not. And I'll see these... Horrific-looking creatures spinning these, these webs outside of our windows and over our doors. They're just little orb weavers, and they're not dangerous. I looked it up. They can still bite you, so like, you know, don't provoke them. But it's creepy when they're right in front of the door, especially if one of them gets a web stuck to the door, so when you open it up, it draws the thing in closer to you. Or when you're on the lawnmower, and it's spinning the thing right in front of you as it's coming down the tree. But anyway... 
So you'll notice that when you have this circumstance, you're very careful or quick when you're going in and out of the door, aren't you? Or if you're less of a wimp than I am, imagine like a black widow spider or something like that. It's not actively trying to hunt you, but it's there. And if you linger at the door, if you go out where that spider is, where those snakes are, there's going to be problems. There's going to be an attack. And this is where most of us just don't take it seriously. We can't see the threat of sin. That's what makes it so insidious. Sin always looks so small when you're just thinking about it. It's just a little spider. If it drops down on me, I can smash it. I'll just move a little faster. I can get around this. And that's what we do. None of us ever thinks it's going to spiral out of control. None of us ever thinks we'll kill our brother in the field. We think that we're above that. And Cain thought that. That's why he didn't take the Lord's warning seriously. One commentator had put it this way. It says, whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his intended sin, even by the Lord himself. So how does this happen? How do you go from being angry and bitter to killing your brother in the field? How does this happen with us? I'll actually have an answer for you. It's in this text. Do you know where sin gets out of control? It's when you have a worship problem. With Cain and Abel, it started out where Abel is giving of himself to the Lord. And Cain is going through the motions. That's where sin begins. You are moving what you're worshiping. If you have the Lord as the foremost priority in your life, I'm not saying that you won't sin, but it tends to keep you in check, doesn't it? Any of us who have been Christians for a long time knows that if we do well, we'll be kept from sin, won't we? At least we won't go as deep. Our consciences will speak sooner. But as soon as our heart begins to wander away from what the Lord has called us to worship, as soon as we stop being amazed at Jesus, sin gets up and says, hey, this one's not looking and desires to have you. Sin is happy to wait for you. Sin's very patient, and it's very productive in its destructiveness, and will seize on any opportunity that it has for you. And if you don't take it seriously, people die, as it did here with Cain. And by the way, the story that's in here did not stop in the Old Testament. It did not stop in modern times. I've been friends with numerous pastors and seminary professors who have told me stories from within churches that would pale this story. I won't share them here. 
But this sort of stuff has not stopped. It still happens when we stop worshiping and we stop taking sin seriously. When we look at this, it's just something we can get away with or play with or stop whenever we want. We need to take this seriously. So we go on and Cain has killed his brother in the field. And the Lord, the master of the leading question, comes to Cain and asks him where his brother is. Obviously, God knows, just like last time in Genesis chapter 3, God knows exactly where Abel is. But he is coming to Cain and seeing what sort of confession we may get out of Cain, if any. And here we get a real insight into Cain's heart. He lies and then tries to put God off as if God is stupid for even asking the question. I don't know where Abel is. It's not even my job to know where Abel is. He's just my brother. Here later on in the Old Testament, that question is supposed to be, no, am, I, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. What have you done? Which is exactly what God asks him. And then he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. One scholar had a wonderful takeaway from that line. It says, It is no empty sentence that the blood of the victim cries out. There is someone there to whom it cries out. God is listening for the victim. God is listening to those who have been unjustly treated. He's not deaf to that. And justice will be served. And we go on. And we find out what his punishment is. And you'll notice this is the first time that a human being himself is cursed. It doesn't reflect what we saw in Adam. When Adam said it, it said, cursed is the ground because of you. But look at what it says here in verse 11. It says, and now you are cursed from the ground. So now he's not going to be able to practice farming anymore. The ground is no longer going to give him food. What was once very difficult is now impossible for Cain. He's going to become a wanderer. And ironically, if he's going to have any source of food, is going to have to take up his brother's place of caring for animals. That's going to be the only way he's going to get anything to eat. And he sends them out to be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Now, some may wonder when Cain is saying, that he's nervous about someone killing him. We may think, wait a minute, we've only heard of four people so far. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Abel's now gone. Who's going to kill Cain? Well, if we look in at chapter 5 and verse 4, that Adam has had many other sons and daughters. So there are more people that have been made in Adam's 900-year life than are recorded here in this passage. So it's very well could be that one of these future siblings will have a grudge match to settle with Cain and will want to kill him. And you'll notice God does something very unexpected. He tells him that he is not going to allow Cain to be murdered. He's not going to let Cain be killed back. This is odd because in Genesis chapter 9, that's the solution. Capital punishment is put in in Genesis chapter 9. Why is God defending a murderer here? 
There's a few different answers to that, but one of them is to stop this cycle of bloodshed. We're really early on in human history. Losing more of humanity is disastrous. So instead, he gives Cain an extended sentence. He's going to have to figure it out for himself. But he is protected from that. So he goes on. He goes away from the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, which actually is the word for wandering. So wherever he goes, he's wandering. East of Eden. You'll notice this, and throughout the rest of Genesis, be listening for east of Eden. It's further away from the garden. When people are traveling east, it's, this is saying that they're moving away from God as a theme. We'll actually see this pop up again with the Magi. When they come to Christ, they are coming to him from the east and moving towards that. It's a little, little literature uh, tidbit there for you. And then we get into verse 17. It says, Now Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And everyone always wants to know, where did this lady come from? And the answer is, is one of Adam and Eve's other children. So at this time, that was allowed. It was the only other human beings around. So Cain married his sister. You cannot. This goes on later on in the Old Testament, just to be clearer. Well, that's what he's referring to here. And what this is, this is the outworking of the serpent's line. The one who has gone away from the presence of God. This doesn't mean that he has gone somewhere that God doesn't exist, but has moved away from God's blessing presence. And let's see what happens to these people, these sinful serpent people. What do they produce? Well, they produce the nomadic lifestyle, they produce metalworking, and they produce music. You've heard of some of these things, haven't you? What's going on? Why do these people get all the cool stuff? Why is it that the snake people get to invent culture? I think even here that this is meant for us to be as a mercy to humanity. That that even amongst the ungodly line, that there is something that can be produced for the good of all humanity. And this should shape how we view the world as well. There was a time when I was growing up that we were taught to be suspicious of all advancements. And that's not entirely a bad thing. But we also don't have to be afraid of the common grace of God. That God will allow scientists who don't believe in God at all to come up with cures for our diseases. And for this, we are grateful and praise the Lord. But at the same time, we can't lose our perspective that life is more than food, metal, and music. And that indeed, as one commentator put it, the line of Cain shows technical ability but moral failure. And helps to put into perspective what is truly important for us. And we can also see as this thing goes forward is that the sin of Cain continues to develop. Here we get to this man named Lamech, the first gangster rapper in the Bible. As he speaks to his two wives, showing again the beginnings of the redefinition of marriage and the toying with God's design begins with the line of, this, the line of Cain. The line of the serpent. 
And he becomes, as one commentator put it, the epitome of Cain. Here no longer does life hold any value. Here Lamech will kill somebody just for hitting him. And looks at the revenge that God had promised to put out on people that killed Cain. He now takes that as a marker. Almost like bragging about years of service in prison. As that this is something to be proud of. Don't we see this in our own culture? Can't tell me the Bible's not relevant. Do we not see this in our own country? We look out there and we are jealous of the cultural achievements of those who don't have the grace of God. And then we see the bragging of a culture for how little it values life. And we might think all up to this point, it's like, well, isn't that kind of it for humanity? Here, Cain's being all successful, building cities and whatnot. Having all these children that produce all these cool things. And then we get to verse 25. And on to our second point. It says, sin will not rule God's plans. Here, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what this means, call upon the name of the Lord, is to proclaim God's goodness and character to the world. It's an act of worship and evangelism to call upon the name of the Lord. And here we see just the beginnings of God's working, about how sin is not ruling God's plans. But it's very disconcerting, isn't it? We get this whole huge line of Cain and all that's going on with him. And so far, we've got two other people who don't make metal, don't play music, and don't live in tents with livestock. It's just two people worshiping the Lord. It might not seem like much. Especially when it looks like that the, that the serpent has been really, really clever. Because he's managed to eliminate the other two. We got rid of Cain by making him a murderer. And we got rid of Abel by making him the victim. Serpent seems like, yeah, that's checkmate. There's all the sons we had to talk about. How does one move on from something like that? That the first murder is your child killing the other child. How do you even have the hope to move on and have another child? What good does this do? It's worth putting ourselves in those shoes. Because we might begin to feel some of those sentiments in our own lives. When we'll work at something in a ministry just to watch it fall apart. We raise our children the way that they're supposed to and then they just wander off. When we invest in our marriages and then they just end in moral failure. It can feel like, well, I guess God's done. There's nothing else he can do with me. Sin won its victory and I guess that's it. And here in Genesis chapter 4, we say, no, 
Seth is born. And on from him, as we'll look at next time in chapter 5 and 6, ultimately he goes on to make a guy you've probably heard of. His name is Noah, who saves the world, the first of many, out of the son that no one would think about, the third one down. There's hope. There was hope when the first two men killed each other. Literally and figuratively. And that's what we'll see unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. Then, of course, this will go all the way down to Jesus himself, the true Savior of the world. Abel's blood called for revenge. And Jesus spilled his blood and it called out for forgiveness. There was another point where it looked like sin had won its victory, didn't it? Here Jesus is preaching to crowds, healing people, raising folks from the dead for 33 years, teaching like no one else had, living a life that was perfect, all just to have him die on the cross. I think, well, that's it. Satan won again. That's just a heel bruise. Jesus wins in the end because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the Savior that you're following. I know many of you. I know many of you are in situations where it just feels like that getting out of this would be like rising from the dead. Or it can feel like pain will just go on forever. Health problems will just go on forever. Relational issues will just go on forever. And that there's no hope. There always is in Jesus. Sin is never going to have the final word. Or maybe you're here today and thinking, well, I actually identify more with Cain, if I'm honest. I'm the one messing up life. I'm the one making life difficult for myself. And every time it seems like I make progress, I sabotage myself. And here, the same God that is providing a way, that provided Jesus, looks to you and says, I can work with you. But the first step is to actually really know that you need him. You are a sinner. Worse one than you think. But that Jesus still holds out his hand to you. And will tell you, I can make this better. I can redeem even your sin and bring you back to myself. If you don't believe me, let's take a look at the Apostle Paul. How did he start out? Murdering Christians. The Lord turned him around to write the majority of the New Testament. He can work with you. He did me. Sin is not going to rule God's plans. Even if it's your own sin. You can't throw them off. So we don't use that as an excuse to then go and try to make as much of a hash of our life as possible. We don't sin more that grace may abound. By no means, Paul says. But instead we look to Christ. And we say, I need your help. And he can fix it. This begins by proclaiming the name of the Lord. 
There are going to be times in your life where you are going to have to shout over your own heart the character and nature of God. That Jesus can forgive you. That Jesus can work through your circumstances. Whether they are caused by your sin or someone else's. It's hard to do. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm the one that has to preach this and I needed it this week. Continue to remind yourself of the gospel. That Jesus gives you hope. That we are not, as one writer said, an, an organic pain collector hurtling toward oblivion. That's not who we are. We are a people who have been redeemed by the Son of God. And if the death of the Son of God is not enough for you, then nothing will be. Jesus is enough. So young people, listen. If you're a child or a child, a kid, listen to me for a moment. Take these things seriously. Those things that your parents are telling you to do, those little things like loading the dishwasher the way you're supposed to, cleaning your room the way you're supposed to, all these little things that we don't understand how it matters, these obediences to your parents, these things matter. Learning how to respect an authority is important. And disobedience to that, even if it's over a little thing, can become a big thing. Learn to obey here in the small stuff. And that will set you up for a greater dependence on Jesus to say, hey, I know I have a hard time listening to my parents. I'm 33. I still have a hard time with that. So keep working at it. Keep depending on Jesus. And he will help form your hearts now to be the kind of people that listen to God later. And to adults, those of us who are supposedly have life all figured out, we know what we're supposed to do. and We've got it all together. Don't get lax. Don't rest on your experience. Don't rest on your knowledge. Rest on Jesus, just like we tell our children to do. Do the same. Keep your heart close to Jesus. It's easy to wander. There's a lot of distractions as adults. But keep the main thing the main thing. It's a main thing for a reason. Avoid sin, not just because it's what we're supposed to do, but because this is where your greatest joy and protection comes from. And to those of you who say, I'm too far gone. I've made a hash of my life. There is still hope. The Lord has worked through people all through history. So it's time to come back to him. You say, yes, I've tried that. Keep coming back. That's the Christian life, by the way. Maybe you're just more honest than the rest of us. You know you've made a hash of your life. Okay, you're closer than someone who thinks they haven't. So come to Christ. Seek his forgiving power. Seek him while he may be found, as we said in our call to worship today. And you will find he is powerful and he is good. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, I pray that this would settle into our hearts today. That we would be prepared and ready to hear your word. 
Lord, I ask for those who are discouraged today from their own sin, that they would be encouraged to come to you, to understand what it is that you have for them and the gift that you have and the grace of your son. Lord, I pray they would feel that today. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.